Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today on the show, I welcome David G. David G. is a globally recognized mind, body, health, and wellness expert, mindful performance trainer, meditation teacher, and author of numerous best-selling books, including Sacred Powers, The Five Secrets to Awakening Transformation, De-Stressifying, the Real World Guide to Personal Empowerment, Lasting Fulfillment, and Peace of Mind, and Secrets of Meditation, a Practical Guide to Inner Peace and Personal Transformation. He is also the creator of the 21-Day Challenge Format, which has spawned hundreds, if not thousands, of 21-Day Meditation and Yoga Challenges around the world. It is no exaggeration to say that David G. has literally taught hundreds of thousands of people how to meditate, and he's managed to accomplish this feat with great humility and a signature humor that eludes most meditation experiences. Now, in our conversation, we talk about the importance of humor and lightness of spirit. David G. shares his story of leaving his career in finance in pursuit of spiritual wealth. We discuss the myriad types of meditation that David G. discovered along his journey from mantra to metta, from zazen to contemplations on his own mortality. We explore the mind-body connection and the physiological impacts of stress, and we unpack the concept of Brahma-vihara, the state that one inhabits in deep meditation. I'm also excited to announce that we have recently produced a meditation course with David G, and you can check it out at onecommune.com slash David G. And if you're interested in other guided meditation programs with teachers like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Michael Beckwith, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, 
mindfulness, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. My mom actually prints out the reviews and puts them on her fridge. That's cute. So without further delay, I present to you, David G. Hello, David G. Om, om. Oh, hello, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, this is how we wave in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nice to be seen um, by someone of your stature. Thank you. You're too kind. Yes. Uh, you have graced us here on our commune. We're actually, for a commune, we're relatively well behaved, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spectacularly. Uh, did see a couple of red tail hawks out of control. Uh, there was a giant raven swirling around the moon uh, yesterday afternoon. That was I caught. I captured that on film. I was going to climb that hill, then I figured I'll let the raven get closer to the moon than me. <laughs> um, it's beautiful here. Thank you for thank you for inviting me, and thanks for uh, allowing me to hang out here for a few days. I've been yeah. loving it. Yeah, I suppose there's many things here that could take on some kind of. Uh numinous significance a raven flying across a yes. full moon the refracting of, some crystal lights right and the raven is the sign of death and rebirth <laughs> you know it's like oh my god yes right here in this sacred moment i experienced it we're too empirically minded to get carried away with these kinds sure. of mysticism oh ridiculous <laughs> well this is um so i was trying to think the first time uh, I'm well, no, this might not be the first time, but it's a very memorable time that I spent in your um presence. Although we, you know, we've traveled um to many far flung places together in the Wanderlust days. Yeah. Um, I remember running into you in the uh, airport in Honolulu. That was a great, yes, that was a that high was, point. That was a highlight for me. Yeah. Um, not just, you know, leading all those hundreds of people in meditation, but then being in the airport and, and being graced by your daughter in her <laughs> leopard PJs, that was still, a, you know, maybe they were even like pink leopard PJs. It was, it was a powerful moment for me. Those are still making a presence, um, on a regular basis. Chez moi. Um, I remember one thing you said, um, you shouldn't have great expectations uh, when you go to the dentist if all you've done is brushed your teeth for two hours the day before. <laughs> um, it's not exactly how you said it. You had a more clever turn of phrase. But, of course, you were referring to the practice yes. of brushing your teeth. Correct. And uh, you were making an astute analogy around... The, the nature of practice as applied in this particular case to meditation, yeah. but just as practice in general, as a, as a essential and crucial component to living. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of like the really interesting aspects of 
metaphysical or spiritual journey or, or, or whatever that whatever that looks like. But even to the point of how we define like a sadhana. So like traditionally, um, we think of sadhana as like, well, I wake up, I do my morning prayer or meditation or connection to source or yoga or, you know, look at my picture of the Dalai Lama and, you know, and then I have an affirmation and then, then I get on my, <laughs> on my way. Right. <laughs> and sadhana is really meant to be lived mm. the whole day. And so, but we're, you know, our society is like, what, what's the least that I can get away with to make this thing happen? Mm -hmm. And so that's when I was talking about the dentist, it was like, yeah, you could either brush every day, you could brush a few times a day, you could brush and floss, you could brush and floss and uh, water pick, um, you could actually like live a life of healthy teeth. And yet there's so much other aspects. What about a, living a life of kindness, self-kindness, kindness to others, forgiveness, forgiveness to others, uh, compassion, compassion to others. And we put those in like very distinct compartmentalized areas. And we're good at having the experience for like five minutes here or eight minutes there or 15 minutes. We're not as good at the installation. And it's that critical installation of these practices or teachings or embodiment um, of them that I believe makes the difference. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's very, um, yeah, easy, as you say, to sort of car car compartmentalize these kind of modalities, often in a very sort of undesirable, morose kind of way. It's like, oh, shit, I've got to do that for the 10 minutes and get it over with. Right. And then we think about it, okay, well, no, what we really want is our practice to punctuate, you know, the other components of our quotidian life. Like, oh, yeah, I want this to carry over, so next time, you know, my children act up, I can find the space, you know. But even beyond that... <laughs> we seem, at least in the West, to be uh, very fixated with this notion of product, of life as product and not process. Like going to the dentist and getting sort of a clean bill of health is the product that we're looking for instead of, as you say, living like a, a teeth-friendly lifestyle, <laughs> if you will. Right. Um, you know, maybe pulling the thread of this analogy a little too far. But that... Um, that there is certain acknowledgement of life as process that goes with this notion of practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is beautiful because we can celebrate and enjoy the process. Hmm. You know, as opposed to, because everything, everything else is so outcome-driven and like, what's the result? And was that successful? Thumbs up, thumbs down, binary choice, good or bad. Um, or we can enjoy the process and like live the, the process, which I think is the thing that must infuse any spiritual journey or really any type of um, self-inquiry, self-exploration. Because it's so easy like to beat yourself up. Like, I ate one too many bliss balls today for lunch. So I could either say that or I could say, 
Whew, I was loving those so much. I was savoring those chocolate morsels so much. That made me smile so much. Right. And the flip side of that would be like, ugh, I ate one too many. That's an extra half a pound I'm going to pick up and like, you know, I'm going to be lethargic or, you know, and we, it's like, pick it. It's one or the other. But how about like today I got to explore a cool and funky food item, whether I liked it or didn't, but like that was today's experience. And I think you and I were talking about this, this concept of just like paying attention enough to cultivate our ability to witness just cultivating the ability without there being so much importance on the thing that we're witnessing. Yeah. And refraining from assigning any particular valence to that phenomenon. Right. Oh, that's good or that's bad, but just to witness. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I know we're both, fans and well at least i can speak for myself acolytes of alan watts and he says uh something along the lines if you know your only concern is getting there well then the journey is going to just be dreary as hell you know and you know when you travel somewhere and you're just absolutely obsessed with getting to that place oh, by the time you get there you're just like completely worn yourself out right. instead of actually enjoying the journey well we've trained ourselves from little kids are we there yet <laughs> right how many times have we probably said that and how many times have you then heard that well you're the driver you know it's like enjoy the rain look out the window watch mm -hmm. it drip down the window I'm like really that's what we're supposed to do for two hours like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean one of the things that i've um always enjoyed about learning from you and being in your presence is this uh tightrope that you walk between conveying deep spiritual wisdom and humor and uh this is just so rare um you know there are people <laughs> There, there's some people that have written books about laughter, very serious books about them, right? Um, but you seem to just very effortlessly um, walk that tightrope. Was that always kind of part of your signature? Um, well, we had been talking about this concept of like winning formula. So for me, whether it's to be liked or to be included or to be seen, Humor had always played a part of my of my childhood, um, and then there was that certain moment where I realized, but it's not the end game. It doesn't have to be like hoping I get the laugh. It can be people are disarmed mm. when you're a little lighter, and we're talking about like deep truths, ancient, deep, profound, you know, universe-shattering, cosmic, epic wisdom. And if I can sort of just make you sort of smile a little bit, perhaps even more, and when you're not paying attention, sort of like slide one of those truths <laughs> inside, and then it's like, oh, where did, I, where did I hear that? You know, you'd be crossing the street in a month like, did I see that on TV or read that in an in-flight magazine? Uh, did I even have in-flight magazines? Probably not. <laughs> um, now they just like, here are the exits. Don't take your mask off. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> right. But but I think that's um, for me. I see those worlds as similar. You know, uh, uh, humor is paradox. It's, it's can you how close can you bring polar opposites and like have them dance together before it's like that thin line between discomfort and um, euphoria. And I think, um, you know, it's been said that spirituality um, or enlightenment is actually being able to um, embrace simultaneously polar extremes. Yes. Can you see, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a classic example is, can you see this terrorist simultaneously as freedom fighter? Not going back and forth, like, oh, I could see that, and I could see that. Can you embrace them simultaneously? Can you embrace this, um, this, this darkness, this pain, this crawling through glass as the most horrific, traumatizing thing, and yet the most beautiful awakening simultaneously? Mm. And I think somehow when we can sort of like dovetail humor into those more metaphysical, spiritual, or, or conversations of awakening or enlightenment. Um, sometimes it, it's, it's an easier portal, an easier access point. Yeah, you talk about Madhyamaka or the middle path, um, and this notion of moderation that, that that seems to play a part in many many um, spiritual traditions. I think there's sometimes a or misunderstanding around the notion of moderation. Um, it gets sort of a reputation of being somewhat limp, right. you know, beige. Yeah, where really it's uh, the uh, a very brave and courageous expression of bringing extremes together right. into coherence and cooperation and often that takes a tremendous amount of humility it takes a tremendous amount of open-mindedness and um, non-judgment right. um, and this is always tricky uh, territory because sometimes there are not moral equivalencies out there sometimes you know to use your example the terrorist and the freedom fighter you know Sometimes that it's hard to see them that way, but uh, but I think that this is the, the logos. You know, the underlying intelligence of nature is to bring things into moderation, is to find eubiosis or um, or middle ground. Um, and obviously, we're living in a time where we seem to be polarized and atomized and pushed to the thinnest edges of the branch more and more. But I mean, I, and I think humor can help that because it's often a conduit for the truth, but also it, it cracks people open in a way. Yeah. And um, it disarms them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's some humanity in there if uh, all of a sudden you're laughing with someone. It's sort of like that that instant um, shortcut out of being head centric. Mm. May not get to the heart, but suddenly you've left the head, <laughs> and that's the, a great starting point for the epiphany. 
Yeah, that's actually a wonderful point because we don't actually have any scientific reasoning for why we laugh. And in fact, the, the moment that we try to explain a joke, it's not funny right. anymore, right. right? And so we, uh, um, it, it's sort of like love. You kind of fall into laughter. You sort of fall into love. You don't ever generally want to fall. <laughs> it's not something that you want to do on purpose. But here are these things, um, these phenomena that we don't actually, can't put our finger on yet. They're just so intrinsically uh, human. Right. Hmm. So you you've made you make me laugh, and I think, you know, I actually heard Chris Anderson, the TED guy. Uh, he was it was actually there's something very postmodern on the founder of TED giving a TED lecture on how to give a TED lecture, <laughs> but he said, you know, one of the first things that you should try to do in the first twenty seconds is make people laugh, because not only does it establish a relationship between you and the audience. But the audience establishes a relationship between themselves. Right. And uh, it's powerful. It's really powerful. Um, so I'd, I'd love to explore a little bit um, uh, how you became to be who you are and, um, and maybe get a little wealth management advice along the way. Um, and your story has been told, but I believe that to scaffold our conversation with a little biography is, is helpful for people so they can see some of their own story in yours. Because the, the, the path to enlightenment is not necessarily a straight line. <laughs> no, and the path to bliss is not necessarily blissful. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. so that is, um, you know, I, I was not born enlightened. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who say they, their mantra was whispered to them in the womb and they were born enlightened. I did not have that, that opportunity. Um, and I guess, you know, it works for some people. It didn't work, um, for me. Although my mother at a very, very young age, um, like I learned to read by my mother teaching me the Ouija board. So that's a that's probably a piece of you know I've never shared that in public but yes that like a very you know as long as I could once I could like rest my hand on something the first thing she had me rested on was the the pointer of the Ouija board and so that's how I learned to, to spell oh, we'll, have to, we'll have to break that out tonight <laughs> I would love that <laughs> I would love that um, so that, for me that was a that was a uh, you know. Um, you know, a, a very, very clear path. I, you know, I was born and grew up and, and, and had a fairly, you know, straightforward path into the corporate world and, and into all, you know, that, that kind of, um, stuff. But I was always a, a renegade and always, you know, a little bit of a rebel in, in all the various things that I did. <clears throat> and, um, probably, you know, just, just craving attention, um, in, in some way or, you know, looking to be uh, seen or heard in, in ways um, that were not being done at the time. Um, but as I got more involved in the corporate world, I sort of also lost my soul. And uh, I got involved in the world of, um, of management and then mergers and acquisitions. And I was pretty good at that 
um, making other people a lot of money. I was not, you know, necessarily making it myself, but, you know, pretty successful in terms of, you know, doing, doing the role and living up to that. Um, but um, at a certain point, I really felt, you know, is that all there is? There's an emptiness here. I was not necessarily growing as a person. And I was just fully dedicated to my job and always had, well, I could never quit it because if I quit it, then how do I pay for everything else? And how do I support, you know, my family and, 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 and do this existence? And so um, I remember that um, ultimately I did leave my job after 9-11, but I didn't have like a next step. I didn't have a plan B. So sometimes I believe that, um, you know, are you running from something or to something? And I was distinctly running from something, but had no idea what I was running to. Mm -hmm. And I believe pain can be a really powerful motivator. And I was willing to take that leap and blow up my life. Um, and, I, and so I did that, you know, blew up my life and went on my, you know, journey of eat, pray, eat, pray, love without the eating and the love, <laughs> just a lot of prayer. <laughs> and, um, David G as Julia Roberts. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so like, you know, did that, you know, in, in search of meaning, in search of the guru, in search of answers and like, and all that stuff. And quite honestly, um, I, I kept coming up short and I think like the harder you look, the, the, the harder it is to find, you know, when you're trying so hard to find answers. And of course the teachings of, of this whole thing is that, you know, the answer is resting inside, you know, what you seek, you already are just like, but didn't know that. And, um, and so like the further you seek, the further you're getting away from it's like, wait, 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 we have the answer just resting inside. If you'll just like slow down and get there. And that's what happened to me. Ultimately, I was able to really stumble into enough stillness and silence, um, combined with an immersion of the Bhagavad Gita and some of this, you know, timeless wisdom where suddenly I was like, oh, it's a divine convergence. It's message messenger and timing hmm. if all three of those are, are are right there then i think transformation is really possible and i think if just one of those is missing you know you could have the perfect messenger and the perfect timing but if the message is weak or beige hmm. you know it's just like it's not going to resonate or you could have the message and the messenger and just as it's coming in you look at your phone like oh Oh, my nephew had a baby <laughs> and like <laughs> exactly and it's gone and so um i had missed it and missed it and missed it and missed it and suddenly um while i was on my my eat pray love my julia roberts you know cloning um journey you know it hit me it hit me like a ton of bricks and suddenly i i realized like everything and then you know i call these butterfly moments where it's just everything is just so crystalline Everything is so obvious and so clear. Sometimes they stay for a flicker of a moment. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they stay for like weeks at a time. You know, those who are more highly evolved, I guess it stays for longer. 
But, you know, I was sort of like in that glow for, for, for a while. And I was like, oh my, there is some, there is life after death on, you know, in this life. Yeah. <clears throat> I've heard you talk about, um, a particular inflection point an experience that you had um, in lower Manhattan and parenthetically we were contemporaneously in that neighborhood at the same time yes. right after 9-11 and uh, can you tell that story about sure yeah sure and you probably we probably had just like walked by each other we didn't know each other we didn't know it's like yeah. that it's like uh, message messenger timing <laughs> <laughs> right exactly <laughs> sliding doors oops yeah. missed it um so yeah in the you know i worked on the 82nd floor of tower two and that was a that was you know a, a, a pretty devastating space to be working in, you know place to be working at for for a certain period of time and um in the wake of 9-11, I'm walking past a row of cardboard boxes that people are living in, um, in Soho, mm -hmm. south of Houston Street. Um, and I walk past this particular box and this hand reaches out, grabs my pant leg. This guy really hard, like pulls me in and gazes up at me. He's got these, these really like sea blue eyes and like we make eye contact. And part of this was verbal conversation. Part of this was, I don't know, telepathy or whatever you want to call it. But he reaches, you know, what my first response is like, oh, um, this guy wants money. And I reach my hand into my pocket and he instantly like pushes his hand against my, my hand in my pocket. And he says, what's going to be on your tombstone? And we're like frozen in that mode. And that's a fairly reflective question, especially at this point in time. And randomly, you know, this is clearly, you know, God speaking through this individual, I believe, mm -hmm. or something happening here. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reaching in my pocket and he says, it's not about the money. The answer is in the stars. And I'm like, what the F? You know, like, I don't even, I don't even know. Yeah. I'm having like the deepest conversation I've ever had in my entire life with some random guy who popped out of a box and he's not even yeah. like fully out. It's just like his hand and a little bit of his face. And I'm like, we're like frozen in time. It felt like hours. Uh, it's probably just like a, a couple of minutes. And then the rest of the conversation was this, like, he's not moving his lips and I'm not moving my lips. And all the traffic is gone and all the people are gone and there's no noise and no one's honking. And we're just like frozen in, in, this, in this bizarre space. And, you know, it ends ultimately. And I ultimately, I, I do pull the, you know, a few dollars out of my pocket and, and he's gone. And I like, I pull the curtain aside and toss some money in there. And like, I don't even know what just happened. And I suddenly like realized that I'm hyperventilating. Tears are streaming down my face. There's just like a around me. Uh, I'm, um, my heart is racing. My knees are weak. I stagger about 20 feet to this apartment building and sit down on the steps there. And I'm just like, what just happened? What just happened? And it was like such a deep pull into... It was beyond my heart. It was like, 
you know, I don't know, where does the soul reside? Is it like up there or is it deeper mm. inside? Is it next to your, you know, next to your heart, that, that mini chakra, the, the uh, hrit chakra? Like, I don't even know wh where that was. But it felt like something, you know, that he had just like reached inside so deeply into me and then just like, just pulled something awake. Hmm. He didn't pull it out, but he just like pulled it awake. And I, and I just, my life has never been the same hmm. from that moment. And that really is the spark that set me off, that gave me sort of like, um, there were two things in my life that sparked me having total confidence to just like move forward. One, my mother died when I was relatively young. And when she died, I was like, well, nothing this bad could ever happen. And that allowed me to break up in a relationship and quit a job um, at my first job ever. Um, so that was like, um, which I would have probably still be working there, you know, because um, I would have been afraid to, to, to leave it. But it was really that type of, that type of confidence. And suddenly I realized, you know what? What is going to be on my tombstone? What is my meaning here on this planet? You know, I need to make a mark. I need to have impact. I need to help heal and serve others. I, you know, I need to make a difference. Hmm. And that I had never had that feeling before, but that has sort of been my guiding light since that moment. That story struck me, you know, Zen monks with their students, they often present these koans, right? It's like there was this Zen monk that just reached out and grabbed you and asked you this question for which you really had no answer at that juncture. But it did propel you on your way. And, you know, in stalking you prior to our conversation and, and landing upon that, that vignette, of course, I couldn't help but ask myself the same question. I'm like, what's going to be on my freaking tombstone? And uh, not that life needs to be as reductionist always as, as uh, you know, 64 characters or whatever you might get on it's your tombstone. It's a pattern interrupt but, and a redirection of attention. Yes, but it did focus me. You know, I said, God, what is going to be on my tombstone? You know? And um, it's sort of a morbid topic to dwell on for too long but uh but you know there are all these traditions like in stoicism there's memento mori or in buddhism there's maranasati there's all of these meditations that are designed uh for people to focus on their own mortality right. not for to be morbid but very much on the contrary because the good news is you're very much alive you know and you have this ability to bring your best self to this strange equation of life yeah. um and uh you know I, I don't know if i have an answer uh, in terms of what will be my on my tombstone but you you begin to um hone in on it a little bit um you know, the fostering of community, building of community for me, you know, as I begin to, you know, examine my own life, what is the thread that I can pull through it? Right. And, um, you know, you talk about the winning strategy or, or is it? Winning the, formula. Winning formula. You know, for me, 
the fostering of community comes from a place of great pain originally where i was this you know chubby kid with hip dysplasia living in foreign countries just wanting to fit in and be liked all the time so i just wanted to do anything to belong or really fit in you know at that juncture and uh, but of course you know that was a coping strategy so i was willing to sacrifice who i authentically was to be part of a group because we're so we're so needy for connection and in a way that led to a lot of suffering later in life where i felt like i always needed to to sacrifice some of who i was authentically or it made it hard for me to put my thumb on who actually i was because i would be just anything that would fit into a situation right what do you need yeah that's who i am yeah people please what do you want but the flip side of that is that i managed to use that coping mechanism into something that became leverageable as as useful you know to build community and to bring people together so anyways this was the, i i felt that story was prescient and and it's also just something that's universally applicable because everyone can ask themselves that and get really clear about what their life well especially is. if we like don't like what's going on in our life yeah and instead we're like oh my you don't understand my life is so horrible or this is happening or that's happening i we all have stuff like that we've all we all have darkness visiting us in some way we all have our world turned upside down at some point or another mm. um and we get to choose our next step sometimes it's a sacrifice sometimes it's a compromise but realistically i mean that's this is the lesson in the bhagavad gita you know essentially do your duty do what you were put here to do right now what are you here to do oh it's take care of your aging parents all right then do that don't whine that's your duty that's what yeah. you're here for right now it's not you're not missing all that other stuff that other stuff doesn't exist do the thing that you're here to do and mm -hmm. i believe one of the most important aspects is that we are not here for just one singular purpose or then we would have you know that would have been life would have been over at some point we're here in certain waves I call these dri arcs, you know, there's mm. it's sort of like, you know, what are you here for right now? You know, what's this what's this arc? Maybe it's 2 years, maybe it's 22 years, you know, whatever that mm. is. But you're here to make an impact or or a contribution or to help heal and serve others in some way right now. Mm. And so similar to, you know, your use of um your your chameleon ability my use of humor i believe you know for you as a child and for me as a child you know these were end games and i believe now instead we use them as the means to greater expansion you use community to create this environment for for all this magnificent teaching and wisdom and connection communities don't always have connection they can be very very loosely tied together um but because of what you bring into the community and because of what your MO is and the purity and the authenticity of your vision um really community is not the end game it's the means to this this higher end people are living lives of greater grace and ease because of 
the community that you have managed to assemble in so many different different incarnations and you know for me that's sort of like what humor is you know uh, i'm not waiting for the punchline and hope i get a standing o at the end of the joke but i just hope that i can share enough tools and techniques and practices that people can move from having a um a state of mind to a trait of character that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help people move from state to trait. <laughs> so if I can just, you know, get you to to pay attention long enough, or you know, use a parlor trick, or a, or or a, or use a, like a soft conversation about a deep thing, to like sort of like get you to have a better access point, then um, then everyone evolves and 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 everyone keeps expanding. So yeah. it's funny that you that you bring that up. But I think that we've both been like taking these separate things and, you know, our winning formulas of the past served us to a certain point. And now we've created these new winning formulas um, to take us to the next level of whatever that is. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if, uh, if I didn't ask you more about meditation, given that this is a, uh, you know, we've just made a course together. Um, and maybe you can frame it within the context of your physical journey. Um, because I'm interested in the variety of modalities that, um, that you came across, um, along that journey and maybe kind of unpack what some of these traditions are. Uh, for people, you know, whether that's Vipassana or Zazen or Metta, sure. et cetera. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a meditation geek. I'm a meditation nerd. So like, you know, give me some, you know, neurological research <laughs> on a bunch of people who are meditating and I like my eyes light up. I'm, you know, I get so excited. Like the people I stalk. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's John Legend and a couple of other people too that I'm really paying attention, but I'm also paying attention to like Sarah Lazar, who's a researcher at, you know, Harvard Medical Center mm -hmm. or always like, who's the newest researcher, you know, Richard J. Davidson, like, who yeah. are these people who are like doing this cutting edge, weird stuff, like doing MRIs on the brain during meditation or, you know, one of the things that Davidson did was like attach electrodes to the pain centers of super meditators, you know, monks who had been meditating for 135,000 hours. Um, I think each of them had at least wow. eight hours a day for three consecutive years. That would be a super meditator. Those are people only living in Gava state. And he like compared their brains to like non-meditators. So stuff like that, you can really see like, well, what's the difference? How is this person going to respond to a certain technique? you know, versus that. And, you know, we people are like in camps. It's like everything else. People are like, like, no, if it's not mindful, it's not meditation. No, it's got to be Vedic. No, it's got to be TM. No, it's got to be primordial sound. No, it's got to be nakshatra. No, it's got to be this mantra or that mantra. So there's a lot of pressure. My philosophy has always been, let me explore them all. Some stuff resonates, some stuff doesn't. And I would think everyone could do that. And then you create your own, you, you pull a thread from this and a thread from there and a thread from here and you, and you weave your fabric, yeah. you know, of, of, of your life. Um, 
so of course, you know, we believe, so the story goes, um, that, uh, that the Buddha uh, attained enlightenment from sitting under um, uh, the peepal tree, which became the Bodhi tree after he awakened and after, you know, the town became Bodh Gaya and from Gaya and he became, you know, the Buddha from, from Siddhartha. And so this technique, we believe, you know, is like the original insight, the original, you know, mm-hmm. um, shimata or samata, however you want to pronounce that. But the original self-reflection, 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 consistently going back to the breath, coming back to self-reflection, back to the breath, self-reflection. We know that we're always going to drift away to thoughts. That's going to be part of life on planet Earth. We know we're always going to drift away to sounds because as as long as we can hear, you know, we're going to hear sounds. At least your eyes, you can close them so you can stop the movement or whatever that might be. Um, And we know that we're always going to drift away to physical sensation. And like one of the most core aspects is, so can we have an object of our attention, like an anchor that we can just keep coming to, not to run away from thoughts and sounds and physical sensations, but just it's like, oh, I like coming back to that. That feels good to me. So a couple of things, and I'll just share like, you know, three different techniques so we could sort of like see the difference in those. So traditionally, you know, watch your breath, notice your breath. And so we could watch the breath as it comes like from here, starting point, into the tip of our nostril, through our nose, into our sinuses, down our throat, into the top of our lungs, the middle, the bottom of our lungs, down as low into our belly as it can go, and then back out. So that's one technique. So let's just try that right now. Mm-hmm. And we'll, eyes can be open or, or closed. It doesn't really matter. Um, but let's just breathe for just, it doesn't make great radio. You know, I had a radio show for a while, so I understand, you know, staring at someone while they're sitting there, silently repeating a mantra. It's, it's, it's loser TV and it's definitely loser radio. And it's not built for podcasts, but... We'll just do it for for just a couple of, you know, so just let's notice. And you sort of notice also the slower you go, you know, the more elongated the whole process is. The slower you go, the quieter you go. And this is what's known as quiet, continuous breath, silent and seamless. And now we'll change the location, the object of our attention. Everybody feels the breath come into them someplace else. Some people, it's like, it's very distinct. It's coming in through my nose or it's coming in through my mouth. But some of us actually feel the breath of the universe coming into us maybe in our heart or in our belly. A lot of times it's different chakra touch points or our throat or our third eye or the top of our head or the side. So close your eyes. And where do you feel the breath of the universe sort of like landing inside of you? And maybe you could even place your fingertips on that space. 
And you realize we actually have like this orientation point where we feel the breath come into us. This is a this is a mindfulness technique as well that I learned from John Kabat-Zinn. And if that space changes, feel free to adjust your fingertips because sometimes it can move up a little bit, higher, lower, left or right. And it's actually comforting to identify that place and sit with it. And now we'll just change it up one more time. See if you can paint a ribbon of breath in the shape of an infinity sign. It's not in your physical body, but maybe right in front of you. And you just watch as you paint a ribbon of breath in the shape of an infinity sign and just either follow or lead that breath through that infinity sign. And there's no right speed. It's however you're floating, however you're flowing, whatever that feels the most comfortable flow. And now take a long, slow, deep breath in. And let that go. When it feels comfortable, you can slowly open your eyes. How was that? Mm. Was there a particular one that you were like, oh, that felt like coming home? For me, the last, the infinity breath. Yeah, well, the beauty of the infinity breath and the thing that actually scientifically or mechanically or mathematically or physics-wise separates it from the other two, it's a closed-loop system, Hmm. if we think about that, right? The first one, it's coming from who knows where into us, going down and going back out into who knows where. The second one, it's a location, but the breath is coming in past our fingertips and moving back out. But that last one, it's sort of like, oh, it's a closed loop. Even if I wanted to drift away, I'm just like in this sweet rhythm of the infinity sign in this closed loop environment. It's it's very funny. 
this is sort of another Alan Watts-ism, but there, there's something about that infinity breath that is, um, that you're just really grooving with the moment. That's it. And um, there's, uh, you know, <laughs> the question comes up, like, why do musicians play music? Well, they don't play to get to the end of the song, right? Right. They play music to play the music. Or why does a dancer dance? Well, certainly not to get to the end of the routine. Or like the best dancer would be the fastest dancer. <laughs> it's And so we often focus on kind of the bullet-pointed benefits of meditation. And absolutely, we'll talk about many of the kind of beneficial knock-on impacts of engaging in this practice and others. But there is also some sense to having no goal with it at all and just to really just be grooving with it. And, uh, and there's something just about the movement of the infinity loop of like, I'm just here grooving with the moment. Right. That's it. <laughs> you know, when we talk, you and I had been talking about how like, you know, nature mm. is distinctly divinely or not seems to be fairly rhythmic mm. in its opposites working with each other and standard deviations up and down with the mean running through things. And there's overcorrections in politics and there's overcorrections in, you know, in, in the growth of a tree, yeah. you know, one way you know, or the other, but, and there's, you know, obviously the, the physical, neurological, emotional benefits of having a practice, you know, can't be disputed. But I believe just like sometimes the, the red tail hawk just wants to keep catching the breeze and surfing on it. We are designed as well to sometimes go like, Ooh, that feels nice. I think I'll stay in that. Not like, and this will help your glucose levels <laughs> and this will, you know, lessen your, your, your cortisol and elevate your serotonin. I think at a certain yeah. point, it's like, oh, the, the human wants to play. <laughs> let's let that, let's let that happen. And I think the more time we spend in that space, we naturally find equilibriums. There's fewer. Yeah overcorrections, high or low, and we get closer to that, to that standard flow. I mean, I, I, there's equanimity in every, in every aspect of, of the planet, and certainly it would be reflective in us as well. Yeah, and we become more com comfortable with spontaneity, if you will. I mean, this is a Zen practice, um, but to be able to, for example, answer that question, what will be on your tombstone, with like, I wear a white tennis shoe, goddammit. You know, and that would be a completely acceptable answer for a, 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 an advanced Zen student, provided that it was spontaneous. Right. <laughs> and, and that the, the lesson there is that we can learn to get out of our own way. And, um, you know, that, that we're in the river. The Tao is, is flowing, whether we like it or not. 
you cannot escape the course of nature. We're in it. And so either we're going to become a skillful navigator and apply the rudder just so and, and be empowered by the river, or we can make life very difficult for ourselves by cognitive analysis, endless chatterboxing. And that is equivalent to swimming upstream. And, uh, and that can be very tiresome and actually be the source of a lot of suffering. And even the answer for me to that question, what's going to be on your tombstone, wasn't like, oh, let me start writing down what I want them <laughs> to start carving there. The answer to that question was like, right. Exactly. Mm, yeah. Exactly. There was no answer. It was just, it's like in Aldous Huxley's book, Island. Those birds are flying over the island and every once in a while they go, attention, attention, attention. <laughs> this, that's what that moment was. That yeah. was like the universe suddenly going, hello. Yeah. Just that. Yeah. There's, um, there's this, uh, I guess I would call them a group of characteristics more than anything called Brahma Vihara. Um, Vihara meaning abodes, I believe, in Brahman, of course, ultimate reality. Um, Sacred abodes. And uh, that these are certain characteristics that we inhabit when we're in a place of deep concentration or integrated consciousness. You, you can play with that if you... Um, but one of those characteristics is this notion of upeka or equanimity. And um, we tend to assign a, that notion with a lot of uh, kind of passivity. Right. And, uh, and though I might argue adopting more passivity might be, given everything going on in the world, might be a decent approach to life. But I also think that there is a little bit of a misunderstanding there that actually that uh, in equanimity, you can still bring your full passionate self to the task at hand, to the moment at hand, but without um, attachment to result. In a way, equanimity is a full recognition of the eternal now that there's never been or never will be anything else except this ever now and you know i've started to th think about that notion of equanimity a bit because um, given how utterly distracted we are at every moment or the the competition for our attention and uh, I believe that one of the most precious gifts that we can give each other is presence. Yeah. And this is a, how I've, in some ways, um, undermines, I think, what a lot of people think about equanimity. It's like, oh, this kind of like limp, dispassionate kind of state of being. But it isn't at all. It's, it's effusive. Really? Yeah. Well, the Brahma Viharas, you know, in, in Chinese, they're referred to as the, the four infinite minds or the four immeasurables. And 
Metta, unconditional loving kindness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, empathetic joy. And Upeka, equanimity. Everyone misunderstands that. <laughs> it's like, oh, you mean stoner. <laughs> stoner, dispassionate. Right. And I like to think more light, less heat. That's mm. for me, that's equanimity. More light, less heat. I got enough heat coming out of my Pitta, Taurus, right. New Yorker, you know, fingers. But if I can, if I can bring more light to, to each moment and not necessarily even externally, let me light up inside. Um, equanimity really means um, being okay with loss and gain, with praise and blame. Mm. with pleasure pain with honor dishonor you know mm. uh, it means not buying into that shit you know it, like guess what you're on planet earth what are you acting so amazed because you lost this or you won that <laughs> yeah and <laughs> like you might have accomplished something great at one point and you put a book out and you got a great review and you're lapping up that praise like a kitty laps up milk or whatever and you're feeling really good about yourself and the next day you know someone calls you or you fall down on the street and you sprain your ankle and uh and you know someone shames you you know and you and you feel a, a great deal of shame and and then step back and notice that it's the same part of you yes that feels that pride and that shame <laughs> and uh, and the more that we identify with that and fixate on it, uh, the more that we become attached to the symbol that we have for ourselves. And that's the overcorrection, yes. you know, when we were like, I'm the most amazing person in the world. You know, I remember uh, Wayne Dyer tells a story that he was like, he was like, one of his books was like, New York Times, number one bestseller for like two weeks, three weeks, seven weeks, nine weeks, and like the 10th week, it like dropped off the list and he came home and he and you said to his wife oh my god i've dropped off the list i've dropped off the list and she said honey it's actually the book not you <laughs> <laughs> and That's he was right. like oh yeah that right it's like the the two monks that go to the river that's flooding and there's a woman there that can't cross the river so one of the monks hoists her on his shoulder and brings her across the river and they get to the other side and he puts her down. She goes off and uh, the other monk is, is very, very concerned. And he says uh, so to the first monk, he's like, yeah, so inappropriate. What are you doing? You're breaking all of your codes and stuff like that. And he's like, what are you talking about? I put her down back there. You're still carrying her. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's a great one. Um, you know, in some ways, we're sort of fast forwarding, you know, towards the end, towards the the eighth limb or the eighth step of the of the noble path, the samadhi. When we talk about Brahma Vihara, because really, there's a long path to get from here to there. But when I think about metta or karuna or mudita or upeka, but like. I think about like Mudita, for example, when have I, or anyone listening, when have you had 
joy simply for someone else's joy, for no other reason. When if you felt that sensation well up within you only for someone else's good fortune, I mean, if you can put your thumb on that, then you're well on your way to being it's the Buddha. It's usually like an Instagram reel where the soldier comes home and the dog runs up to them and they haven't seen each other for a year or something, you know. But it's that's why it's so powerful because mm. it's like that eight seconds. Well, you're your full expression of yourself, which is essentially not yourself. Right is that you feel that there is no delineation between what it is like to be you and what it is like to be that soldier with the dog and the kid being reunited. Right. Or karuna, the identification of one's, of someone else's suffering as one's own and the bringing forth of loving kindness and goodwill and in attempt to alleviate that suffering. But, and you know, these are, um, this is a, in some ways I, I think about the state of being that is accessible to us all. Um, and it is sort of like a state, like Wyoming or Colorado, except you don't have to get on an airplane. It's here, you know, it is available to us. Um, but there is some, uh, but there is some agency required um, to to inhabit that state. And, um, and I suppose there's a lot of ways in there. So like the, 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 the example that you gave, the, the various iterations on kind of breath-focused meditation, would you qualify that as vipassana or slightly different? I would qualify all of those as some version of a mindfulness Mm -hmm. meditation where we were simply paying attention to what was going on using our breath as the object of of attention in its full-on you know vipassana there's 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 certain technique shifts that some people have versus versus others but yes if you can elongate that you know we did it i don't know for 30 seconds each um just at the sampler pack (laughs) um but if we can stretch that out and make it a daily practice. And, and that is the thing that I, that I do want to stress because we do, you know, we started off talking about brushing your teeth. We do brush our teeth every day and probably a few times a day. And we do poop, ideally, you know, once a day. And we pee at least once a day. And we're ingesting, you know, food and nourishment, you know. And so there are certain like basic physiological things that we are doing and we're taking a breath constantly and we're, and our heart is beating. So there's like certain stuff. Can we get to the space where we're also introducing these breaks in the action, Mm. which we otherwise are not doing? Every single moment of our life is in activity. And when Elizabeth Blackburn won the 2008 Nobel Prize in Medicine, you know, for discovering telomerase and doing her work on telomeres, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they said to her, like, so, you know, how do where's telomerase, you know, created in the body? You know, telomerase is that lubricant of our telomeres, which hang off our chromosomes, which you just look at with an electron microscope and you go, you're looking good. 
Yeah. You're looking good. You've got long lubricated telomeres. You're going to live for six months unless something, unless you get hit by a, a bus or something. And if your telomeres are short and craggy, you could look at them and go like, it's not looking good. You're going to yeah. die soon. So imagine there's like a, a factor going on inside of our blood that we can see as a sign of, of not just like, oh, you're okay, but like good health and bad health. And they said to her, so where's telomerase created? And she was like, I don't even know. This is the Nobel Prize winner, you know, and she didn't say it like that because she's Australian. But um, <laughs> and then and then they said, so, um, OK, you don't know where it. How is it created? And she said it's created. And these are her words. It's created by us introducing a pattern interrupt into our default mechanism. When I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. What's our default mechanism? And she followed up with our default me mechanism is being in activity every other moment, mm. looking and searching and finding and doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and then looking some more and then resisting the moment and then looking for more moments. And, you know, they said to her, so what do you... Okay, so what's the, what's the way that we can cultivate it? She said, I only know one way, and that's by practicing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's, she wasn't a meditator at the time. She might have said, oh, it also includes mantra-based meditation. Oh, it also includes a body scan. Um, the beauty of all these research studies on meditation and this is really important that everyone who's ever said, but my meditation is filled with me replaying a dinner party or a conversation that I had with my sister or, you know, some traumatic moment back in time. Not one of these research studies that shows inflammation comes down and, and neurological expansion in your prefrontal cortex and executive decision making gets increased as well as your language and your memory um, and spatial orientation, like all these things. Not once in any of these research study, and I have read thousands of abstracts because that's like reading comic books for me. Mm -hmm. um, not once did they say, oh, and what were you thinking about during that meditation? Not once did they say, well, wait a second. Were you like scratching an itch or listening to a plane or, or harping on some, some grievance that you had? It doesn't even matter. We just have to show up and do the thing. It doesn't matter what else is going on. There's no like high-minded thoughts. Oh, you were thinking about Alan Watts versus how many avocados you should pick up at the store. That's a much higher level. You're really transcending. There's like <laughs> those conversations don't exist and that out, those aspects of the study don't exist. So, you know, it's sort of like saying brush your teeth a few times a day. You know, even if you have a crappy technique, even if you're using like, you know, I don't know, the special Costco toothpaste or like whatever it is, guess what? You're still going to be like nourishing your teeth. And so it's not like, oh, got to have a rigid spine and only must be thinking about insightful things and saving the planet and serving the world. You could be thinking about, you know, that you're going to like have a conversation with someone and it's not going to be good or you're scared to have it or that you've been struggling with some aspect of your life, whether that's your weight or your memory or your, you know, your self-kindness or whatever, it's okay. The thing still works. You just have to show up and do the thing. And it's a break. It's your brain taking a breath. It's actually a break in the action that we're not giving ourselves in any other way. Even when people mm -hmm. say, but you know, bicycling is my meditation or hiking is my meditation. Still an activity, according to the Nobel Prize laureate, I would say it's not 
introducing a pattern interrupt into your default mechanism. Your winning mm. formula is always being in movement, in motion, doing, doing, doing high achiever stuff. I get it. So let's see if we can carve out this other thing to infuse us. Because one of the things about the Brahma Viharas, you know, they're called abodes. What's an abode? It's a place where you're supposed to live. So yeah. not just visit occasionally. They don't call them, you know, the Brahma Retreat Center. They're the <laughs> Brahma Viharas. They're the, the, the abodes of the divine. So mm -hmm. if we can, you know, spend a little more time there on a daily basis as opposed to the occasional visit every six weeks for a retreat or something like that, then we'll start to like live them and they'll be, you know, installed and we'll move from state to trait in terms of those. I would love to have those four immeasurables as like traits that are just like carved inside of me and pulsing as opposed to the occasional state that I have once in a while when I'm feeling a little righteous or, you know, pure. Yes, I would, yeah, I was thinking about the nature of love, for example, and uh, there was, uh, there's this roomy poem I know that almost everybody knows at the guest house, which is essentially this notion that emotions like love or jealousy, envy, essentially like visit your house as invited or perhaps uninvited dinner guests and you right. know, steal a bread roll and go out the back door, whatever they do. But essentially you're the house and emotions are phenomena arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment. You're the sky, emotions and sensations are clouds. You're the road. Emotions are pedestrians or bicyclists in this case, or automobiles. And um, uh, and yes, I think that, that we can experience emotion that way as passing phenomena. But I, uh, but I think that there's also this greater capital L love, uh, love consciousness, if you will. Um, which is not a love that visits us as much as we visit it. It is a higher state. And I've started to think about those characteristics of the Brahma Vihara being sort of like, oh yeah, I'm in that state now. You know, I'm feeling empathetic joy. I'm feeling a sense of, uh, of equanimity as a product of my direct experience. That is a sensation that I am inhabiting. And, um, Whew, you know, if, if this practice has any goal, you know, that's not a bad one. Um, and, uh, and it really can make for a very fulfilling life. And, you know, to be honest, I, I, I don't know. I just glimpse it from time to time, feel it from time to time. But, um, but if, if, if it seems as though the more that we can create that space, the more opportunity we have to visit that state. Um, so I, I wonder if you could uh, unpack a couple other kind of angle or approaches to meditation, like specifically mantra. Uh, I know that that's something that you've spent some time with. So what, what is a mantra and what is mantra meditation? Well, let's go back to the concept of object of attention. It helps to have, I mean, here's the reality. We're going to drift. Mm. We're going to settle in. 
We're going to begin our witnessing of whatever, and then give us eight seconds. We're going to drift. That's, that's who we are. That's what we do. So this, you know, so many people have, you know, put it like, referred to like monkey mind as like pejorative or negative or whatever. It's like, we don't even have to go monkey mind. Don't be mean to the monkey. This is human mind. We drift. We're drifters. We are the drifters. No matter what our intention is, we could go to the most magnificent museum. This happened to me. I was with my dad. We were, you know, gazing at the Mona Lisa. And within like, I don't know, eight seconds, I was like, is that a smile? Or is that a frown? <laughs> is this the original? Did we have to travel all the way to France to see this? It's the same thing on my phone as I am here. Like suddenly, <laughs> there, there was like like all. The, I, I suddenly like here I was in the presence of this magnificence, and within eight seconds, I was someplace else. Right, and so we're going to drift, and we're going to drift when we're not meditating. We're going to drift when we are meditating. If we're having a thought form every few seconds, that would be normal. So it helps if we have an anchor. And so that last meditation we did, the infinity sign, because I believe it's a closed loop system, that happened to be a, a better anchor for you. But John Kabat-Zinn swears by the, let me feel where the breath is entering me and place my fingertips on that. For me, um, I got an early... Um, inculcation into mantras. And mantras, two Sanskrit words, man means mind, and tra means vehicle or instrument. We actually get the word train, travel, transportation from the root tra, you know, in Sanskrit. There's lots of words we use in Sanskrit. It's not just like woo-woo, spiritual, cooked out stuff. <laughs> There's like a lot of real, real, real world. words. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, we get the word uh, ignite, ignition from the word for fire in Sanskrit, agni. Yeah. You know, or the, vidya. Right, exactly. Yeah, Vidya, video, wisdom, vision, and videos. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the beauty of a mantra is um, we repeat it silently. It's usually a word or a phrase or a few words, but there are long mantras. There are like, you know, there are big, big, you know, beefy mantras uh, that Deva Pamal and Sanatam Kaur and Krishna Das have turned into careers, um, you know, by the fact that they're so magnificent in translating those mantras into, uh, into beautiful sound. So um, my orientation has, has been to, you know, mantras, and I've studied and become a teacher in a couple of different mantra schools, and that's just allowed me to just go deeper uh, and deeper. That saying, I still love meditating using infinity breath, and I still love just, you know, that's really one of the reasons I got my aura ring was I wanted to track what happens to my physiology when I do this mantra, Om Moksha Ritam, or this ancient Buddhist one, Om Aham, or this one, Soham, and suddenly, and so like after I meditate, I sit down and go, okay, I use that mantra, here's what my heart rate did, here's what my body, and then I have sort of like the intangible thing that's not on my app, that's like, huh, I feel softer now, or I feel fidgety, or like whatever that is. So we get to choose, and it was actually Dr. Herbert Benson, 70 years ago, he's the guy who coined the phrase, the relaxation response, originally one of the early, early, earliest teachers of, of Harvard Medical School. And he said, pick a mantra that makes you feel soothed. So if you grew up 
and you know ave maria was like the soothing thing or you know um alhamdulillah was you know part of your orientation that made you always feel you know good and right or the Lord is my shepherd, or Jesus is my Lord and Savior, or Hail Mary, or Shalom, or we get to pick it. Um, you know, we get to like decide what's a thing that I could feel in a groove about. So that was his orientation. So here's the guy who pretty much said, pick your mantra. It can be I am, it can be whatever you want. And if it feels good, go there. And when you drift away to thoughts, sounds, and sensations, and of course you will, then just ever, ever so gently, don't yank back, don't do anything with those thoughts. There's lots of schools of meditation when they say, take the thought and then open up a little jelly jar and then place the thought in a jelly jar and then seal it and like Anne Lamott, you know, and bird by bird and then put it on the shelf. I'm like, no, there's like way too much activity going on there. How about we just like treat it like a cloud? It comes in, we watch it, it goes, and then we drift back to the object of our attention. Um, so for me, um, I love experimenting with different mantras. Um, I like Chinese mantras and, and Arabic mantras and Sanskrit mantras. I'm big on Sanskrit mantras because that's been a lot of my orientation as well. But I encourage people like find your access point. Even if your mantra is, feels like an affirmation, even if it's like, I am love. And you're like, oh my God, that's so, that's like such a non, you know, effective mantra. I think it's an amazing mantra. You know, you show up every single day and for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon, you say, I am love over and over again. And then you drift away and then come back to it. Guess what? Who's got more love going on inside them than that person who is using that basic English mantra? So the beauty of a mantra, in my opinion, is not for its meaning, but for its vibration. Hmm. So even I am love, at a certain point, I stop paying attention to what it even means. I know what it means, I get it. Now I'm just gonna get into that, that rhythm and that vibrational aspect because I believe that all mantras ultimately are just um, entrainment devices yeah. for a higher something, a higher calling. Yeah, my first introduction to mantra um, was through Herbie Hancock so I was in the music industry for many, many years. I ran a label and a management company, and I had a young singer, wonderful young singer named Sonia Kitchell, who Herbie Hancock tapped to be in his band. And this, of course, is the legendary jazz pianist for people who are familiar with Herbie. But um, so I would, uh, you know, kind of, you know, follow them along on tour here and there. And uh, he had a chanting practice, mantra practice, that he employed right before every single show. So we were actually at Carnegie Hall in New York City. And, uh, you know, he kind of got to know me. I was in the green room and stuff like that. And then Herbie always had his kind of smaller room, like the room beyond the green room. And he's like, okay, well, who wants to come in? He's like, the only rule is once you come in, you can't leave. So I was like, well, I'll come in. I don't know what's going to go on back here. but <laughs> And he began to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And, uh, and he is not known as a singer, um, but he had this kind of very deep, resonant voice. Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And, you know, there was, he had the 
baddest musicians ever in his band. And so they were in there in this tiny little sanctum, tight, all nom yo ho renge kyo. And of course, I had no idea what it meant. I don't know anything from Buddha nature at that juncture. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just phonetically saying the, the, the chant, following along. And he would go. And, you know, there'd be people knocking on the door. Uh, Mr. Hancock, um, we're sort of a union house here and it's 801 and uh, you got to get on the state. Didn't matter. Right. Herbie was done when he was done. And, um, and uh, you know, that was kind of my first introduction to, well, I think that that form of Buddhism or that sect, with I, I believe that was like Nichiren or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. But Tina Turner, same same, same school. Yeah. Okay. So, but in some ways, because I had no idea what it meant, I was just in the vibration of it. Right. It was so pure. Yes. And then I was like, every time I was backstage with him, I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> I won't leave. I won't leave. I'm in. And, uh, and that was almost the extent of my entire relationship with him because he was always so busy otherwise doing press and whatnot, was just, was just chanting. Um, and in a way, I guess I would ask you this, is mantra almost a form of like sonic drishti or, um, and you might have to explain the notion of drishti, but just essentially an object to uh, capture your undivided attention? It is. You know, drist, drishti is like attention. So even in yoga, if our hand is like this, you know, and we're gazing at our fingertip, that's a drishti. A drishti can be any spot, any attention where we have, you know, where we're typically gazing out, whatever that visual looks like. So it can be the wall socket. It can be a Sri Yantra or a mandala. Um, it can be a beautiful, you know, sunset even. It doesn't matter. Um, it can be the moon. Hmm. Um, but a sonic drishti, again, would be object of attention. And so the beauty of silent mantra versus mantra that's sort of like making its way through the physical realm Mm -hmm. through air and sound is it's really the difference between here we are in the in the here and now and here we are in the energetic space so for example and i would invite everyone we're gonna like ohm out loud all right you, you can close your eyes for this we're just gonna take a deep breath in and when we exhale we're just gonna like ohm as long and loud as as we can in in this moment um so let's see what that looks like um close your eyes and take a long, slow, deep breath in. Oh. Oh. Right? Now, long, slow, deep breath in, and we'll do that same om only silently. Let's see how long that lasts. Long, slow, deep breath in. I don't mean to be rude, but perhaps that ohm is still going right now. 
Right? I don't think that Om ever stops. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the, the, the difference. Um, and, you know, everybody's got their own school. If you will go to a chiropractor, he goes, adjustment's the answer. You go to a surgeon, oh, let's definitely cut that out. You know, we can go on and on with, you know, go to an herbalist, it's herbs. Go to, you know, we can. But I think it's the same thing here. Um, if you ask Krishna Das, you know, how do you, how do you merge with the universe? He would say chanting obviously. Um, and I like chanting and I like mindfulness and I like mantra, but for me, silent mantra, there's just something sacred about it. And I like to use Sanskrit mantras because I didn't grow up speaking Sanskrit. No one here has been grown up speaking Sanskrit. I, I don't think it's been spoken as a language for over 500 years on the subcontinent of India. Um, now there are like 87 different dialects in Indian Sanskrit, not one of them as a spoken language. But for me, that means like, oh my God, it's an ancient language. It has been rippling through the ether for thousands of years. And whatever I say has already been said. Let me just jump on that cosmic thread. So it doesn't matter whether it's an om, whether it's a, in English, in Sanskrit, whether it's a primordial sound. You know, a lot of the ancient sages said, um, let's make these vibrations have no meaning. What's the vibration that leaves make when the wind rustles them? What's the vibration of the, of the ocean um, hitting, hitting the shore? What's the vibration of a, uh, of a hawk flying over and, and, and squealing, you know, or, 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 or crowing? Uh, and suddenly we realize there's a whole bunch of sounds of nature that um, they don't have English translations. Mm. We get the same sort of, kind of thing with the chakra vibrations um you know lam vam ram yam ham ksham om there's no meaning to these they're just vibrations and we use them for their vibrational quality so knowing that yam um, is the vibration of the heart chakra we can actually you know, what's that going to do? Well, if, you know, if you believe this or not, it doesn't matter, you know, but if it's like, if you don't like yum, you could use yum um, because they both sound the same if you chant them out loud. And if you chant them silently, it just goes forever anyway. So, but, you know, what delivers more unconditional self-kindness, self-love, self-compassion, self-forgiveness than, you know, connecting to your heart and chanting the vibration of the heart chakra, the heart energy center. And so you don't have to, you know, believe in anything or not believe in anything. Just like go to that space. Um, and so I love, you know, using different vibrations for different things. If like the code word for self-kindness, self-compassion, self-forgiveness, and self-love, if the code word for that is yum, let me just go there and use that vibration, which doesn't necessarily mean anything else. But for me, it's my, you know, it's my direct, you know, channeling or my download into self-care. Yes, that is the first password. <laughs> but what is the second password? <laughs> um, um, swordfish. Swordfish. God, you're so good. Um, what kind of delineation would you make between meditation and uh, reflection or contemplation? So, for example, we've talked about a number of different meditation techniques. But, for example, like Stoicism has what I would categorize more 
as uh, contemplations or reflections on gratitude, for example? How do you delineate between meditation and contemplation? Yeah. Um, if we could go back to, you know, the, that conversation a little bit about sadhana, like what's the, what's the whole thing look like? You know, what's, what's included in your, quote, practice? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's assume there's a morning practice and an afternoon practice. You know, in, in India, there's the puja and the arti. Um, uh, in, in the uh, Arabic world, in the, in the Islamic world, there's, you know, multiple prayers throughout the, the, the course of, of, of the day. Um, let's, let's go to, um, to Islam just for a moment, because Islam, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, debate over whether is is meditation appropriate is it not obviously when we go to like the sufi um the, the sufis and the um their dicker you know there's like you know meditation greenlit it's it's okay within the more modern community there's some details you know uh, if you're more fundamentalist versus more progressive you know but the quran specifically uses multiple words for meditation and and every meditation in Islam um, is um, another way for you to see God's miracles. So meditation isn't you just repeating, I am love. That would not, that in, in Islam, that's not the thing. It would be, um, but the Quran instructs us, uh, the Muhammad, uh, the, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, uh, go into the night sky and look at the stars and then just, feel the miracles of God. That's it. At a certain point, you will have be, not be able to do anything other than feel the miraculousness of God. And so I think that um, whether it's Stoicism or whether, you know, this type of Christian contemplation um, or whether it's even in Islam, <clears throat> the word meditate, and we even get like, well, let me meditate on that. Um, you know, it's yeah. been, uh, euphemisms have been created over, let me ponder, let me reflect, let me pay attention, let me um, allow. So far be it from me to say, no, 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 that's not meditation. I think those reflections and those, you know, insight meditation is, is, is really that, that form um, of meditation as well. I think sometimes asking such a deep question over and over until we get into some state that's beyond intellectual answers. Like if I said to you, what holds your stars apart in your universe together? All right. And just like, hang on to that one for a half hour and I'll get back to you. And that's really all you did. You just you ask that question, what holds my stars apart in my universe together? Or how can I help others, heal others, serve others using my unique gifts, my special talents? Or what's going to be on my tombstone? Or how can I help raise the vibration of the planet? You know, as long as you weren't, you know, formulating strategic plans in terms of the outcome of that, it's like when I was asked what's going to be on your tombstone, the answer isn't, oh, um, here's how I would like the first line laid out. It's, it's, oh, uh, am I even going to have a tombstone? Like, wh- why am I here? What, you know, it suddenly forces you to go so much deeper. And I like to ask the question as one of these deep reflections, um, who am I? Who am I? 
or who am I when I'm at my best? Hmm. And so what I like to do is first settle in a little bit. Then I refer to these as sacred questions. I'll ask, who am I? What am I grateful for? Uh, what does my heart truly long for? What's my purpose? Things along those lines. Maybe wait for like a minute for answers to come. Then I'll invite an intention, and that's part of my practice as well, inviting an intention into my awareness, maybe a state of mind or a state of being that I'd like to embrace at a higher level, just for today. And if I've done like all of that, that's sort of like my, my lead-in or my appetizer portion, then I'll use a mantra or watch my breath to go even deeper. And so I think that if we look at it just as like, is what's meditation? Uh, I would say the whole, for me, the whole thing is, is a meditation. And the silent part is only a component of that process. And a lot of people might say, well, there's a lot of stuff for me. You know, I got, I got a heavy schedule. I got stuff to do. I can't be like asking who am I when I'm at my best. And I would say, Really? You can't ask that question to set the trajectory of your day. You're just going to like show up and like hope that you're your best. At the end of the day, are you asking the question, hmm, what did I learn about myself today? What did I learn about life? No, of course you're not. So if you're not setting yourself up and prepping, you know, for like typing your, typing the address into the GPS, hmm. you don't have to go there, but a higher likelihood you'll get closer to where you think you wanted to go. So if we can set a trajectory and then, you know, as the second meditation of the day, we could sort of like release some of the energy we absorbed. I think that's powerful stuff. And I think um, to ask questions, to, to, to start conversations with something, you know, your higher self or your best expression or God or what, whatever that looks like. And, you know, you might say, oh, like, you know, this is, this, this is going to get in the way of my connection to God, I don't think so. I think this brings you closer to whatever you believe in. You've typically just been asking for stuff your whole life, whether it's been praying or begging or, <laughs> or requesting in a very, very formal and civilized way or negotiating. We negotiated COVID, everybody here. We totally co-created this thing. We said, I want less of this and less of that and less less pollution over China and fewer cars on the road. And I want this and that and the oil companies, I want them to shut down. And, you know, I want to stop working so hard and I want to spend more time with my family. And I want to like not have to see that person all the time. And I want to, I don't want to go out with all these people and collectively 7.6 billion people manifested this, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, the power of prayer. Um, but we're mostly begging and praying and asking. And we're not spending a lot of time listening. And if we can just give ourselves permission to just let the noise, not the noise outside of us, the noise inside of us, this thing, just let it slow down a little bit. This thing, just let it slow down a little bit. Just like dedicate some time for me to just breathe. That would be it. And the beauty of that is, we have all these techniques to do it. I don't have to say, oh, I want to stop thoughts. I can just repeat this thing over and over and over. And guess what happens? Those thoughts, they sort of dissipate. And then, of course, I drift away to them. And then I drift back to this thing that I repeat over and over, which has no meaning. It's just a vibration. 
over and over and over and over. And so I think that silent part or that meditative part of the meditation really helps crystallize everything. We know it's creating Talama race, if nothing nothing (laughs) Nothing else. else. (laughs) It's increasing longevity (laughs) and lifespan, if only that. Right, if only that. And and for what? So we could work harder and never reflect? Yeah. So I think self-inquiry, you know, that's a big, you know, for me, that's a big thing. Self-inquiry, self-reflection. It's part of the original teachings of Patanjali in in the Niyamas, Svadhyaya, self-study is an important component of of life. How do we learn? How do we grow? It's by sometimes struggling or suffering or failing and then getting back up. And sometimes it's by holding up the mirror and being honest with ourselves. And so I think those are beautiful aspects to weave into your daily practice. Mm. Yeah. That's really well put and gives me something to think about or not. Um, For example, as you were untangling that, uh, you know, I, I thought a lot about gratitude and what that actually really means to me. And, um, yeah, you know, yes, thankfulness. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for my great fortune. Um, and, and there are too many, uh, to recount, but that didn't feel like an ample enough definition for that word for me. Um, so I started to kind of really think like, what does gratitude truly mean to me? And I landed something closer that to the idea that, that gratitude is best reflected in the works and actions in which you engage that reflect the miracle of life's gifts. So that it wasn't enough just for me to sort of feel a sense of thankfulness, but that I actually, in order to acknowledge it, that I needed to engage in work and action and uh, that I, I needed to live a certain dharma. And that, and that's a very a sort of a, a contemplative approach, you know, that is a very intellectual and, uh, you know, I'm using a lot of like concepts and words and semiotics to like get at something. <laughs> and then, but it's not, it is useful, you know, that I know that gratitude for me means action. And, but then just to sit quietly in that um, after engaging in that more intellectual reflection and actually uh, experience it as a feeling, as a sensation. And, um, you know, with, without all the words. And uh, it's an interesting practice, at least it has been for me. And what I find is that when I have a sort of gratitude practice, that gratitude punctuates my life, that I do engage in those works and actions that I am more giving and loving uh, in my day-to-day life just with anyone, that I'm there, all there. That's what I find the most is that um, when I'm in a a state of gratitude that I'm completely present 
for people. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not thinking about something else. I'm not drifting off. I'm just right there. That's the best thing I can do. So, um, you're a gratitude alchemist. <laughs> trying. Really, you're transmuting it, you know. Um, you know, we look at like Martin Luther King, you know, channeled his rage, transmuted it into, you know, distinct action, hmm. uh, distinct civil action, uh, communal action, and you are a, a transmuter. Um, of that. So gratitude acts to a certain extent like a like like fuel for the work that you do. It's beautiful. Mm. I mean, it's so so great. In um in one of your books, I think I think Secrets of Meditation, you get into the stages of consciousness. And I think this word consciousness can be very uh bewildering for people. Can you uh, Sherpa us through consciousness as a concept and, and subsequently through its various stages? Sure. In its, in, its most, um, in its most basic form, consciousness is awareness. It's just awareness. So, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that we're in this beautiful location. Um, everyone else can't necessarily see it, but I'm looking at trees. I'm looking at you and nature. So it's just like this beautiful, you know, sweet setting. Um, uh, I'm conscious that I have responsibilities. I'm conscious that I'm wearing clothes. I'm conscious that I need to make sure I lean into the microphone when I speak, um, which I probably have not done for the last two hours. Um, I, I guess I wasn't so conscious. So, sorry, Nick. Um, but you're and, conscious of the unconsciousness. Right. Yeah. And we can be conscious of our lack of consciousness. Um, but, you know, in, in, the, um, in the ancient wisdom traditions, there are essentially four states of consciousness. There's our waking state, which is right here, the here and now. Um, there's our sleep state, which is, you know, restful dullness. Nothing's really going on there. There's that thread between waking and deep sleep, which is our dream state. Hmm. And then there's a fourth state, which the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi referred to as transcendence consciousness. But for thousands of years, people have referred to this fourth state as Turiya. What does Turiya mean? Fourth. So in Sanskrit, <laughs> so um, tautological, right? So it's so it's not like yes. What is the significance of Turiya? Or um, Aww. <laughs> so um, so those are like the four states of consciousness, and these are all um, you know real world. Everybody here has been awake, been asleep, dreamed, and sort of like realized uh, I was beyond that for a flicker of a second or you know whatever that is when we meditate we experience this thing um within the meditation where we and only three things can happen when we meditate that's the beauty only three things we could fall asleep we could have thoughts or we could experience stillness it doesn't get more complicated than that so you may say no 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 my knee itched thought um, no, 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 I was uh, having a conversation with my grandmother in another realm, thought. Um, no, I fell asleep. Sleep. 
you know, and, and stillness. So that stillness can last for a flicker or for a longer extended period of time. There's actually a phrase for that, a word for that in Sanskrit, and that's atma darshan. Atma is soul, darshan is glimpsing. So that's glimpsing the soul. So yes, it's perceived that theoretically that that's something that could happen to me when I'm meditating. It could be a flicker. It could be like, was I asleep? Where was I? What, what was that? So in the state of Atmadarshan, you can't know that you're there. What, where were you? You were merging with oneness. You were fully, fully conscious. Whereas Patanjali would say you like, um, you were recognizing your true nature, which is pure unbounded consciousness. And maybe you realized it for a billionth of a second, and then you had to take a breath again and come back into this flesh casing. And you're like, oh yeah, here I am, back here again. You know, maybe you felt your heart beat and it pulled you out. So those are like the, the first, you know, four possibilities. But then there's three more states of consciousness that exist for us in waking state, not when we're meditating. And I believe we've all had some version of these. Um, the, um, the fifth level of consciousness, not Turiya or Atmadarshan, um, but that fifth level is known as um, cosmic consciousness. And this is witnessing awareness. This is sort of like what people who are watching this podcast, you're sort of like watching this. If you suddenly floated back to observe you in the middle of this, or I floated back or mm. saw it differently, or like, oh my God, I'm almost like seeing it from a third person viewpoint, that's cosmic consciousness. It's suddenly where you feel that you could be separated from your experience. You watch your life experience unfolding in mm. that moment. Like awareness of awareness? Yes, yes. Where you sort of like ask the question, who, who's the person having that thought? <laughs> is that, is, is that... there a thinker of the thoughts <laughs> or a feeler of the feeling? Right, yeah. right. So you can ask, you can go deeper using that, like, yeah. you know, um, what do I feel right now? Who's feeling that right now? Yeah. Um, or what am I thinking right now? Who's thinking that? You know, who's actually, what's going on here? Where am I? You know, where's the remote? Um, so that would be cosmic consciousness, witnessing awareness. And this, again, these are waking states. So I would encourage everyone to like, you may say, well, no, no, that never happened to me. Maybe it did in a flicker. It's a higher state of consciousness. And we're not like leveling up here and going like, oh, so sorry. You're so pathetic. You did not experience cosmic consciousness. You know, they come and go and it all depends on a, a lot of other factors. But you may think, oh, I'm not, I'm not high enough. Guess what? If you've ever had a traumatic moment, you've probably watched yourself from afar having the traumatic moment. Mm. And so suddenly we start to realize, oh, it's not just like bliss modes where I'm levitating and having, you know, walking through sunshine. It's, we've all had it. Mm. We've all had a moment where we've seen our life unfold, even if it's just for a, for a moment at a distance. Then that moves us to the next, to the sixth. This is known as divine consciousness. This is God consciousness. This is where we see God in everything. 
And maybe you never had a witnessing awareness moment, but you've suddenly looked at the sun or a sunset or a sunrise or a flower or a bird, and you've said, oh my God, there's definitely something bigger than me here. And maybe you didn't say, oh, that's God, but it's where you start to see miracles or the divine or some expansiveness where you go like, oh my God, fractal theory. Look at that Nautilus shell. How is that even possible? Or look at that fern. Every single aspect is perfect. Or that snowflake or, or that geode. Or, you know, we can go on and on. Like, how's that stuff possible? Hmm. Pinecone. Really? You don't believe in something godly or bigger than you take a look at a pine cone and go like how'd that happen how'd they do that thing um and so this is a state of course that can last in the moment as we you know can be a state as we watch the sunset or it can so we can wake up in the morning and say you know what life is miraculous there's, there's such beauty in every place that i look and then suddenly that state becomes a trait and then the seventh state of consciousness, and yeah, I know there's so many sevens here, you know, seven chakras and seven vibrations and you know, seven states of consciousness. Um, it's, it's, it's a magic number. Yeah. Well, Buddhism was really good with assigning numbers to things. It's like built for Instagram, you know, right? <laughs> right. Because it was, I mean, there were some things scrawled on some palm fronts and things like that, but otherwise you had to remember all this right. stuff. It's like, <laughs> Uh, three principles, yeah. um, four, four noble, noble truths, truths. <laughs> uh, five remembrances, six <laughs> paramitas, you know, like... eightfold noble path. <laughs> Throw it out. <laughs> right. Okay. So number seven. So number seven, <laughs> so number seven is um, unity consciousness. Mm. This is oneness consciousness. Now you may say, "Well, I've never felt that," but I would say, "Au contraire." Have you ever been to a concert and there are people there who are as devotional to who's ever on stage as you are and suddenly they play that song and everybody, you know, suddenly starts squirting oxytocin all over each other and <laughs> dopamine and it's just like this giant oneness fest. Um, ever go to a sporting event where suddenly, you know, your team scores a goal or something or, you know, kicks a field goal or hits a home run or whatever. And everybody like on your side, suddenly, you know, even that person who like you were looking at because they, they drank too much and they're unkempt and they smell and you're like, my brother, um, <laughs> you know, it's that, that's unity conscious. Yes. <laughs> right. That's unity consciousness where you suddenly, it's just like, you know, everyone you see is like, one with yeah. you there's no separation of any you're not thinking in terms of color or or race or 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 for money it's like the most important thing that you believe is the most important thing that they believe in that moment and you just hmm. and so we've all experienced that even if you're like watching some, like for me, it's like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I know, not necessarily popular in this kind of community, but it's like, I'm a devotee for years now. And like when those girls are on there and Kyle and Lisa Rinna and, you know, Garcelle and, you know, Sutton and, you know, like all that whole thing's going on and Erica Jane, I'm like, oh my God. And everyone is my people and Andy Cohen is my people. And, you know, suddenly there's like a, even though it's like a sliver, a fragment of, of weirdos who are doing this, 
I'm experiencing unity consciousness in that moment. And so when we meditate, it's really only Atma Darshan, glimpsing the soul. That's a whole other level of consciousness. That's a state of restful awareness, also known as restful alertness. But then there are higher states that we can wander through the world, either witnessing from a totally objective plane uh, where we can suddenly experience the divine or God or miracles as we, as we look around us, even looking into the eyes of God. That's what I've been saying to myself throughout this entire time. Every time I look at you, oh my God, you're so beautiful. I'm looking into the eyes of God. It's like, I feel like so blessed. And then unity, you know, consciousness. So these are higher states. We can cultivate them. I believe we cultivate them all through meditation, but it's possible for us to just, you know, go to a, you know, go to a concert and suddenly get sucked into that whole oneness of the universe. Yeah, transcendent art is very good at making us all feel the same. I mean, true transcendent art, um, whether that be music or oratory, soaring oratory. That's what I think often. I mean, who, uh, you know, hasn't been in a room where, you know, the clips of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, you know, been playing where everybody's just, you know, got goosebumps. I mean, if you put fMRIs on everybody, everyone's brain would be lighting up in exactly the same way. And, um, and you know, this is when we, um, uh, we have the sensation of something very conceptual, of like what many African nations call Ubuntu, or what the Buddha referred to as Indra's net, this notion that we're all part of this infinite web, and in every juncture of that web is a crystalline diamond or water droplet that reflects every other one. And... Uh, that I am because we are, simply. And, you know, this is um, a very different way of experiencing one's life. And uh, it's a very beautiful way, and that's unlocked um, through meditation and, as you say, through, through music. But meditation, uh, particularly your breath, is something that you have for free at all times. I mean, until you don't have it, but it's right there. And uh, and not to leverage it seems like an awful waste. Well, and, and even if it's not a waste, we would have to acknowledge, um, of course it's a waste, but there's like two things that no one's getting enough of. I don't care who you are. Two things. One is breath. No one's breathing enough. 7.6 billion people on this planet, no one's breathing enough. Most people are breathing incorrectly. Most people are mouth breathers in through the mouth. You're not getting enough. And there's no filtration system. So that's insane, crazy. Um, and so no one's breathing enough and no one's getting enough love. I don't care if you're the love doctor. I don't care if you are the love mastery queen of whatever. You're not getting enough love. And we should be more receptive to letting love in. That will probably allow us to then, as we breathe, to let love back out. But we're not breathing enough and we're not letting enough love in. We're, we're love deprived and breath deprived. And imagine if we just 
I don't know, set your phone at like 10, 12, 2, 4. I'm talking about like then taking a minute at like four times a day to practice metta. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. Feel unconditional love that exists throughout the universe. Feel it. Feel your heart. Your heart's so cute and finite. Metta is unconditional and infinite. So that can just come in, fill you. Allow the breath to fill you also. And then like figure out, who do I want to direct this to? And then as you exhale, just send that metta. That's how you live in the divine abode mm. as opposed to visiting it. Mm. You know, and I'm just... I'm just suggesting for like a minute, four times a day out of 24 total hours. And if you're like, oh no, I'm really busy. You don't understand. Like, oh my God, you're too busy to breathe or receive love. And we know you're deprived in both of those areas. Um, this is, how, I believe this is how we can sort of like shift. And I'm so, so glad that you suddenly like popped off with, you know, the Brahma Viharas and, and, and Upeka because you know, like metta is like a, it's such an easy starting point for everybody because it includes love and the breath and it's tonglen, energy exchange, giving and receiving. It's mm. like, it's got it all. It's like the perfect package for, for everything. And we could cultivate something from that. It's really hard to curse someone and plot their murder when you're breathing in the divine love <laughs> of the universe, filling your heart with it, and then flowing it out to someone you care about. It's really hard to then simultaneously be like plotting. Yes. It's, well, I don't think it is possible. Um, you know, there's so many benefits that we could unpack to meditation. We'd be here for days. Um, and we've, we've alluded to them. I mean, just, you know, now there's these studies where they can show that the brain changes physiologically. It grows additional gray matter. Yeah. Um, Obviously, meditation and its ability to improve sleep. And now we know uh, we are starting to unpack the nature of sleep uh, and obviously all of its benefits around memory consolidation, but also the glymphatic system that purges the brain of these beta amyloid proteins and tau proteins that are associated with dementia and neurodegenerative diseases, etc. We know that meditation can lower cortisol levels, that it's a doorway into our neurology, our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, that we can, it's a, it's a tool that we can use to access what's happening below the crust of consciousness, which usually operates down there, um, you know, respiratory rate, heart rate, urination, digestion, all of these things that miraculously the body is generally just taking care of. Well, the breath gives us access to this and can bring us out of fight or flight or amygdala hijack or sympathetic overload. The stuff that these, these involuntary reactions to perceived threat that then have all of these downstream uh, neuromodulator uh, impacts and obviously we know now that chronic uh, low-grade cortisol can degrade the gut microbiome and cause intestinal permeability, which then creates inflammation and all this stuff. I mean, and, you know, and it can lead to hyperglycemia and raise glucose levels. I mean, all of this is science. And I mean, I know how into um, neurology and physiology you are. You talk about it at great depth um, in, in your books. 
and uh and we could probably spend another podcast really just really untangling and unpacking all of those but i do want to spend in the remaining time that we have together talking about meditation and its ability to address uh emotional trauma and uh i say this against the backdrop of kind of these endless litany of statistics that people are producing now and you know around overdoses from opioids uh, suicide rates but also autoimmune disease and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and dementia and chronic diseases that we can't even understand why they are so efflorescent and um and if you keep going upstream and you ask yourself well why do these things all exist oh well we know that there's a mind body connection and we know that people are suffering uh are carrying forth trauma you know well, well why are people carrying forth trauma well you know they've suffered in some particular way from an event of neglect or war or abuse well but then why is that happening well we've created a world a context like a culture which is toxic and it's almost like if the snow on top of the mountain is polluted you know it's going to have all of these downstream effects and um so when i you know look at the sources the root causes of so much of our societal disease i uh, i often land on emotional trauma and i know that this is an area that you've given significant thought and work so i wonder if you could unpack that a bit yeah it's powerful um we all have something they don't teach it in school how to recover our parents were typically a little too young to even know anything when they raised us so whether they were the cause or something else was the cause and they didn't know how to soothe it or help us move through it but everyone's carrying something we're all carrying something and maybe it happens to us later in life um if we continue it was dr david simon who said that 90% of our physical toxicity is emotionally derived yeah of course there's that 10% which we know is going to come from our environment or something else you know whether that's you know getting bitten by a tick or whether that's you know being exposed to something of course but that means that there's a whole bunch that's being driven into us by ourselves self-inflicted well most of our wounds are indeed self-inflicted and they're just how we are responding to the trauma to the violence to the abuse to the to the to the horrors that were visually even shown on the news mm-hmm. you know we had all been sort of like you know when we had been thinking about like what are what are the the realities of of war and stuff like that maybe we've had flickers or glimmers of of atrocities during vietnam war or world war 2 or certainly you know the the holocaust and death camps and and things along those lines well we just got suddenly 
it, no one was expecting to suddenly be exposed to like, oh, by the way, in the 2020s, here's what's actually going on um, as well. Uh, so there are so many versions of um, traumatic stress. There's post-traumatic stress. There's pre-post-traumatic stress. There's secondary, you know, post-secondary traumatic stress. There's vicarious stress. There's like, you could be suffering and I love you and I take on your stress and I never saw the thing or never felt the thing or experienced the thing that, that, that the, or the violence perpetrated on, on you. Yeah. And yet I'm curled up in the fetal position and I'm incapable of moving forward. And this informs and impacts all of my decision-making going forward and probably everyone I'm interacting with as well. Um, and now there's even like, you know, complex because there's too many trigger points that are happening to us. And we know, you know, imagine we actually say, oh, well, the traditional forms are being physically, sexually, or emotionally abused. We're actually gotten to the point where they're like, oh yeah, those are the conventional ones. You know, the outrageous, you know, things that have happened to so many people. And, and we're like, well, that's that category. So what it seems to be is that it's more prevalent than we realize. Just like there's Prozac in our water systems, you know, in all of our reservoirs. There's Prozac in because so many people have taken Prozac for the last 25 years that now if you turn on your tap and take a sip, there's Prozac in there. It's become so endemic to, to who we are and, and, and what's going on. And so the world is beautiful. The world is magnificent. And this goes back to our conversation. And there's a lot of violence. And there's a lot of recklessness. And there's a lot of lack of safety in this space as well. And since we were never taught, how do I cope? We talked about our coping mechanisms. You know, each of us said, well, here's how you became a chameleon, I became a comedian, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, that's how we get by. That's just the surface stuff though. That was not, you know, like, what about the torment inside? What about the invisibility inside? What about the physical abuse that I had to cover up with, you know, sort of like, we just saw Chris Rock do it, you know? He was like, wow. You know, he couldn't even integrate it. Didn't, didn't know, I mean, yeah. did brilliantly, but like couldn't even navigate, you know, those, those few moments. I think there's been some magnificent work by Calhoun and Tadeshi primarily, but there's so many other, you know, Kolb and, 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 and a whole bunch of other, you know, great, researchers and professors and studiers and scientists in this area who've really studied this concept of post-traumatic growth. You know, so what is a trauma? Um, simply put, it means that your world has been turned on its head. Whatever you thought the world was supposed to be suddenly, no, it's not that. Shattering, shatters whatever your perspective of existence was, shattered whatever your dream was. It doesn't have to be you know, oh, I had a white picket fence, you know, type of, it doesn't have to be that. It means everything that you thought life was, this was, suddenly there's a giant shift. We all had a vision at three, five, seven, eight, nine, twelve, 12, what life was supposed to be. And if at any time in that process, it got turned on its head, 
you know, it could be something as, you know, even, you know, Russia attacking Ukraine or, or the Twin Towers, which I thought I would, I once almost bought a house so that I could look at the Twin Towers across the river every single day. I was like in negotiations. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I want to see those buildings every day to remind me I can grow to the sky, whatever was going on in my life at that time, you know, and then suddenly, boom, they're not there. I mean, I was actually on the 27th floor of a building um, watching Tower 2 collapse, and I had worked in Tower 2. And when that happened, my brain, which thought the world was like this, suddenly went, because like, I didn't understand that. I couldn't even, I couldn't perceive it. I couldn't conceive it. That's just me visually experiencing that type of, that type of trauma. So imagine when you figured, oh, life is safe and people who love me will take care of me. And then they, they visit, you know, abuse or violence on you, or this is how things are supposed to be. And then the world gets turned upside down. So Tadeshi and Calhoun have done massive amounts of work on post-traumatic growth, which means that yes, your world has been shattered. Your world has been turned upside down. But if you can work on a few very, very specific practices, and meditation is one of them, but that's not their lead thing at all, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, then we can move from a state of PTSD to a state of PTG. And in that process, PTG has been actually proven to um, increase wound healing, uh, decrease brain inflammation. But two really, really important things happen from that process. You find out what's really important in your life. When you've had a trauma and then you step back, you suddenly realize what matters on this path to growth. Not that you have meaning, not that there's meaning behind a death or an abuse or a violence perpetrated on you, but suddenly you realize as you pull back, well, I used to think that mattered. Does it still? And what matters now? So those moments of self-inquiry and self-reflection. It also helps you figure out who's in my front row. Who's there to support me? And a lot of people, you know, they don't reach out or they just shrink in and they will not experience PTG. If you step away from whatever support might be there, you can't experience it. You can't do this stuff alone. But one of the techniques that I've taken, you know, there are years of study and I've distilled it down into at least a first couple of steps. Practice is something that I call CFL. It's not the Canadian Football League. CFL, if we can see what's going on right now as a challenge versus a threat, that's the C. See it as a challenge, you know, which is like, you know, what an athlete going on to the field or the court or whatever, you know, it's a challenge, not a threat. A threat is fight, flight. A threat is when you sense an attack or a threat to your physiology or to your belief systems, something you think you own. If instead you can see it as a challenge, it's like, well, it's tough. It's going to take some time and take some work. But I believe this is a, a process and I'm willing to receive it as a challenge. We grow from challenges. We don't grow from threats. 
we knee jerk from threats mm. and our physiology gets hijacked and our hormones and chemicals get hijacked and our emotional state gets hijacked really hard to pull yourself out. But if you could just start off the process. So wherever you are right now, if you're suffering, see whatever that thing is as a challenge, a challenge to be overcome, a challenge to be met, a challenge to be greeted. It's not a threat. You're not in mortal danger now. You might have been, but you're not, right? If you're watching or listening to this, you're not in mortal danger in this moment. And that means this is a challenge. The F, we have to see this as finite, this stage of our life, as opposed to infinite. It's really easy, even in the slightest thing. Your heart's been broken. You think, I'll never love again. I'll, I'll be like this forever. Who am I? No one will ever love me. I gave the best years of my life. And blah, blah, blah. We can go on and on and on with whatever that thing is. But if instead we can see it as finite and know that this too shall pass, gamze ya'avur, you know, that was on the inside of the... King Solomon's ring, you know? We know that this moment too, this is part of impermanence. This is part of life. This too shall pass. It may pass in five years. And if you've had an extreme loss right now, this is not to mitigate it or gloss over it. We're not trying to get over it. You need to sit and grieve. You need to take that time with yourself. But see this as finite. See the pain and suffering as finite. And how do we do that? We actually create an artificial timeline. We wrap our fingers around some artificial timeline. You've just been diagnosed and you have to go through chemo. When's it start? When's it end? Don't worry about anything else. Just be here now. Um, you just found out that your partner's been cheating on you, but only for 20 years. And now it's time for the divorce or separation. You know, when does the paperwork start? And when are you free, fully liberated? We take these things as opportunities. So whether you've been dumped or fired or diagnosed or picked the thing or abused, you know, let's make it finite. If we can chunk it down and suddenly realize this is not infinity or eternity, it's six weeks or five months, or it's actually digestible. I've lived X amount of years, I could certainly live another few. So finite versus infinite. And the L, challenge versus threat. Finite versus infinite and L. We have to somehow believe that we will learn and grow. You don't have to find meaning. Some things have no meaning. Mm. How could you find meaning in the, in the death of a child? How could you find meaning from a random act of violence? But you have to believe that you will learn and grow from this. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not excusing it. In no way am I trying to whitewash over any of this. The reality is, if you can put your attention on challenge, finite, and learning and growing, there'll be sparks of PTG. Hmm. Suddenly, you'll start to realize, you know what? That person looks like they're rooting for me. You know what? I think I have greater clarity on where I want the rest of my life to go. And you're not even aware that inflammation's coming down, that wounds are healing, that you're making peace with your past simply by doing that, if you could just cut yourself some slack. So I recommend that whatever's going on, if you can just begin the practice of CFL, because 
Trust me, you're thinking about this stuff all the time. It's informing and infusing itself into every every channel you watch, every coffee you order, every poop you take, every shower you have, every time you put on clothes, it's there. So why not turn it into this process for you where you begin to take back your life and master that process. This is just a toe in the water of healing. And of course, you know, therapy is so critically important. And of course, talking to people is important. And of course, you know, you, you know, realizing that you're freaking awesome as you are, but you're wounded, you're damaged. And so you need to be kinder to yourself and only surround yourself with people who are rooting for you to succeed. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. There's a, a Japanese art form known as Kintsugi art. You familiar with it? Golden thread. Yeah. So it's often uh, applied to shattered ceramics. It could be tea caddies or tea cups, bowls. Um, but there's an analogy there where... Um, you know, we're all shattered in some way you know, over the course of a life. We all have disappointments and we suffer at the hands of others, betrayals. And, um, and the wonderful thing about Kintsugi art is that it takes these shattered ceramics and it reassembles them or reconstitutes them with molten gold. And, uh, when you pick up one of these, I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of these things. I'm sure you have, but they're just the most magnificent pieces of art. And they have these uh, golden veins through them. And in Japanese, they're known as precious scars. Precious scars. And, um, and this is uh, <laughs> what the experience of being alive is. It's picking up the pieces and, uh, and reconstituting ourselves with all of our precious scars. So reassembling in the Kabbalah, the shattered mind of God. And, um, and, and this is the examined life and we know that there's no other life worth living, right? And, um, and one of the keys to to Kintsugi is, is the reverence mm. for the thing. Yeah. So it's not like, good thing we made a whole new thing. Don't worry about what it was. There's honor and reverence for what it was with the understanding, and we're even making it better, even yes. more beautiful now. Yes. From its, from its shattered aspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the chameleon and the comedian, we might have to take it on the road. <laughs> I love you, David G. You're a beautiful, beautiful man. And uh, I so enjoy um, yoking with you. And uh, I feel absolutely um, present and relaxed. And it's just a, a great, great honor and pleasure. So thank you.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with David G. Keep abreast of his work at davidg.com. And be sure to check out his commune program at onecommune.com slash davidg. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense of how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for the first 15 minutes about brands. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts here, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with any constructive criticism or notes or questions at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every email. And I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.